Hi, I'm Jamin, and you're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. My guest today is Nadia Masri, founder and CEO of Perksy and Forbes 30 Under 30 in the 2019 Marketing Advertising Division. Founded in 2015, Perksy is a market intelligence platform that leverages mobile to drive real-time insights from hyper-targeted, hyper-local audiences of millennials and Gen Z. Prior to founding Perksy, Nadia founded and operated several companies, including 460, a digital marketing platform of e-commerce retailers, and Birdcage Magazine. Nadia, thanks for being on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. This message is brought to you by Displayer. How much of your analysis and reporting time is spent doing manual tasks? All that cutting and pasting, formatting, checking for mistakes, redoing work, using too many tools, and trying just to figure it all out. Try Displayer today. It's software that automatically does the painful tasks for you. Thousands of companies already use Displayer to cut their analysis and reporting time literally in half. I use the platform, I love it, and I know. Get a demo and a free trial at displayer.com happy, spelled D-I-S, P-L-A-Y-R dot com forward slash happy. This episode is brought to you by SurveyMonkey. Almost everyone is taken at surveys, but did you know that SurveyMonkey offers complete solutions for market researchers? In addition to flexible surveys, their global audience panel and research services, SurveyMonkey just launched a fast and easy way to collect market feedback with seven new expert solutions for concept and creative testing. With built-in customizable methodologies, AI-powered insights, and industry benchmarking, you can get feedback on your ideas from your target market in a presentation-ready format, by the way, in as little as an hour. For more information on SurveyMonkey's market research solutions, visit surveymonkey.com slash market research. That's surveymonkey.com slash market research. It is an absolute honor. Forbes 30 under 30, that is actually a really big deal. Tell me a little bit about your parents and how they informed what you do today. Yeah. So, you know, I don't get that question that often, but I feel like my parents greatly influenced what I do today. So my dad is a psychiatrist in Canada and my mom was a teacher, but uh, she later became a coach and has really always been one of those people that loves to research. She'll research everything. So it's very much in my family, it's sort of in our genes to be fact finding and to try and learn as much as possible. But, you know, I think the environment of learning was just something that I was brought up with. And on my dad's side, I think I share his curiosity about people. So why they do the things they do, what drives their behavior, what makes them tick. I think, you know, he helped me at a very early age sort of develop that, that sort of that appetite. And, you know, on, on top of that, you know, he's a deeply empathetic person. I think it's required in the work that he does. And I think that empathy translates really well in wanting to better understand people. Um, and so I think even just their personalities and, you know, the values that they hold have helped shaped me today. And from a you know, professional perspective, I think you know, they've really encouraged me to sort of find my own path and 
And they, they've always encouraged the entrepreneurship side of things. You know, my dad has, he's one of 10 kids. He's got a couple siblings who are entrepreneurs and one that's in technology. And so I think they've always believed in, in sort of that pursuit and helped form that path for me. Has your dad always been a psychologist? Psychiatrist, yeah. Psychiatrist, um, excuse me? Yep, yep. So he, he's always been a doctor. You know, he's a very specific type of psychiatrist now. He focuses a lot on transcultural psychiatry. And I think that's also influenced different things in our platform as well. So he is, is one of the few psychiatrists in Canada that focuses on helping you know, immigrants to transition into the new culture and, and help them with that transition. So he's taught me a lot about cultural diversity. And that's something that we ended up building into our platform um, and ensuring that we think about different cultures and different ethnicities and how their behavior might be different depending on where they come from and sort of how to interpret that. So that's actually been a, that's a really interesting little nugget there as to how something that he has done has helped inform even the product that I've co-created with my team. I recently did a podcast series on the importance of diversity at the research analytics phase in yep. order to understand people groups. And otherwise, you know, you wind up with natural biases that you just can't simply remove when you're analyzing data based on whomever is doing the, the analytics. And I was blown away at the level of mistakes that I have personally made in my career, professional career, in analyzing data and representing certain people groups without really understanding that people group outside of like a data set, right? Yeah. And how it, it actually can be a superpower to a brand if they can have the cultural relevancy to then interpret what the application is of that insight. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the way that we frame it when we're talking about uh, diversity in our platform uh, with brands is saying, you know, if you're, if you're targeting, let's say they're trying to reach uh, the Hispanic population, there are going to be cultural differences between you know, someone who's Hispanic from Puerto Rico versus someone, you know, who's Hispanic from Mexico, right? And I think those are the kinds of things that the brands need to consider. No one wants to be put into these these larger buckets, but thinking about the subtle nuances and how they affect research and, and how they are applied to research is extremely important. Yeah, for sure. Especially relevant to things like messaging, etc. You are a serial entrepreneur and it's pretty obvious to me at a young age, you realized that, you know, your, your heart was set on realizing your vision. Tell me, what was the first business that you created? Uh, so the first real business that I created was a college pro franchise. So I begged my dad to be the guarantor on a loan because I was 17 at the time and wasn't old enough to get a loan myself from the bank. And my mom was like, don't do it. But he was like, no, I'm going to do it. And thank goodness he did that was sort of my, my real foray into entrepreneurship. And so that was a, just a local franchise for painting houses. So that business was really me recruiting different groups of painters, running different job sites, literally just painting houses in the neighborhood. So that was fairly successful for me. And, you know, we produced quite a bit of work. And from that, I remember thinking to myself, I mean, this is fascinating. I think I've always enjoyed being a creator. And I like designing things. I like the concept of design, not just in the way that, that one might think of it artistically, but really like designing any type of architecture, 
And I think for me, designing a business is really sort of like designing your own little universe. And to me, that's creating, it's creating your own little world. When I was younger, I actually wanted to be a director. And I remember talking to my mom, I think it was a year ago or something like that. I was saying, you know, mom, was I always an entrepreneur? And she says, you know, I think, you know, the dots connect now, but maybe they didn't at the time. She's like, one thing I think you always have been for sure is a creator. She's like, when, remember when you wanted to be a director? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I remember that. Um, I still hope to one day executive producer or do something along those lines. I, I was always really, really interested in film. But she was like, you really just wanted to create and tell your own stories. You wanted to create a product and you wanted to design everything around it. I think the idea was, you know, at, at that age, I thought the director was the person who decides, you know, what, what does a set going to look like? What, what do the costumes look like? What, you know, what, what's the best script to put in place? Who, who are you going to cast? And I loved that concept. And I think that's kind of what you do with a, you know, with a company. You're, you're casting the folks. You're, you're finding different people to cover different areas. The set design is like the product design. You know, the script is, is the, the content, you know, the messaging and the copy and the communications. And, you know, the, there, there's an underlying story to all of it. And so I think that that repeated itself, you know, as I transitioned from, you know, when I was younger and, and was focused on creative pursuits to being a bit older and, and starting companies. And I, I thought that was, I thought that was a really interesting insight from her perspective. Yeah, when you think about, I actually think about entrepreneurship in the way of fiction. And it's all about creating that fiction and bringing it into reality. Because it's something yes. that quite literally doesn't exist. And nobody else can see that. And so it's a fantasy novel that you then have to architect and uh, manufacture. And ultimately, that is a living, breathing story. That is a great way to think about it. That's another thing I wanted to do when I was young. That was before I wanted to be a director. I wanted to be a, a fiction writer. I was like, I want to be like J.K. Rowling. She's my hero. I want to be like her. I want to write a Harry Potter. That's, I mean, that, that was, I do too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, don't, I don't we all? Skill, I mean, who, but who doesn't? Was... I mean, we all, want to be, we all want to be a creator of the next Harry Potter. So we're having this interview in an interesting time in our lives. You know, I'm 49 years old. And I've been through a couple of economic downturns, first the dot-com and then, you know, later the financial crisis, 2008. Um, and then, of course, you know, the 9-11 thing. But is in, in all my life, I've never seen anything like this in context of a, like a global framework. And, you know, we were actually set to inter, uh, have this conversation, conversation before, but I'm really glad that we're able to have it, have it right now. So as the, as the world is like still spinning and moving along, how has this pandemic impacted you? You know, I, I think it's been really interesting because our, our business has actually doubled during this time frame. I mean, we were always on track and we were always setting out to build something around the concept of the Adobe suite of consumer research products. That's what we wanted to create. But we wanted to solve some really particular pain points. We wanted to design a platform that's really respond built for the respondent first to really focus on the respondent experience, which we didn't feel any other platforms did. Um, we also wanted to build a platform that wouldn't just give you speed. So, you know, we get same day results, but we think that, you know, speed should be table stakes, right? I think that's just in, in general, you should be able to turn around insights quite quickly. They don't need to be within an hour, right? You, you want to make sure that they're, they're high quality, but at, at least within a few days. And so, 
you know, we thought about all these things and we thought about putting them together and, and really designed a premium enterprise solution. But I think that, you know, when it comes to emerging platforms and new technologies, sometimes larger companies can be slower to adopt. And, and you know, for good reason, sometimes they can be hesitant of, of new entrants. They want to see them prove themselves, right? And I think that our value prop has really been amplified during this time, which is just better, faster research that's more affordable than the incumbents. So, you know, we, we sort of position ourselves as our true competitors are, uh, you know, the Ipsos, the Cantars of the world, the Research Nows, um, or I should say Dynatas of the world. And so during this time, we've actually seen a lot of success. So we saw our sales double. And we've continued to be able to build, given the fact that, you know, we are a technology company. And so most of the tools that we use even internally for communications and collaboration, they're all, um, you know, tech-based tools. And so it was easy for us to go, to go virtual. But we also saw that, I think right now, given that there aren't as many conferences that you can be at, the best companies right now aren't winning on sponsorships. The best companies right now are winning on product and sort of how they're delivering the messaging around their value, which can be done in sort of, you know, digital ways that are relatively inexpensive. And so I think it's really leveled the playing field for many companies, especially for startups that are looking to challenge incumbents. Um, and so I think that's been, that's been great for us. Of course, you know, there's a lot of fear and, you know, many of our customers are are going through a lot. You know, some of them are going through budget freezes and, and things like that. And we really empathize with that because, you know, we're a small company and we've been through phases where we know what it's like to not be able to, to spend the dollars that you want to spend. Of course, in this context, it's much more dramatic. And I think, you know, what we're trying to do is find a way to really show up for our customers. Like, how can we, how can we show up for them in a way that we're solving their problems and giving them the peace of mind they need during this time frame? How can they understand what their audiences are thinking, feeling, and how can they do that in a way that's conducive to the new way of working, right? Like the new normal for the workforce. So that's what we've really been thinking about. Of course, I actually just recovered from being presumed positive for COVID. So, I mean, it's also a terrifying time just on an individual basis. I mean, thinking about whether or not you'll get it and how you'll be affected. I mean, I'm, I'm concerned for my family and for, for the well-being of my employees and their families. And so I, I think there is a lot of fear, but I think the strongest metals are forged in, in the hottest fires. And so as companies, whether small or large, it's just really focusing on what really matters right now and focusing on the customer experience and understanding how you can optimize the work that you're doing to just just point towards that north star to be able to come out stronger and come out you know strong and steady i do think that there are going to be a lot of changes in the marketplace as a whole though obviously you know there's you know this is triggered hugely unexpected obviously unexpected pre covid but hugely unexpected economic downturn and so as a result you know, I think people really have to think differently, but brands are starting to show up and say, you know, we want to be able to use digital tools instead of turning to these sleepy offline processes. And I think that's a place that we can really show up and a place where we can be helpful. And so it's been really rewarding in that capacity. So, you know, I, I'm definitely very optimistic about our future and, and how we're growing. And I'm very optimistic in that, you know, the insights that we can deliver 
will really serve the customers that we have and, and really help them figure out what's next. As a successful entrepreneur, several times over, when you think about the tools that are winning, why do you think Zoom has won at the video level? Huh, that's a great question. I mean, we already used Zoom. And the reason that we used it is because design is one of the core pillars in our company. We care very much about the experience. It's, you know, it's why we have design patents and, and why, you know, our platform and app looks the way that it does. So I think I personally chose Zoom for the company because of how great it looks and just the ease of use. I found it to be, it feel much more premium compared to, uh, you know, the Google Hangouts tool um, and things like that. I also do believe many of the startups that I had been working with or like that I know use Zoom as well. And, and I do want to, I do want to preface this by saying I'm by no means an expert and my sample is definitely biased. I'm, I'm talking about other founders who are just like me here, but I think sometimes, you know, it, it's kind of like the, the concept of how things that are considered cool emerge, right? They emerge from the rule breakers, the rule makers and the culture shapers. And I think that in the business world, you know, those are the startups, uh, the startups that are, are breaking on the rules, they're innovating, they're moving fast, they're trying to change the world. And I think sometimes, you know, we look to them to understand what is it that they're doing and how are they thinking and how is that different and how can I integrate that into to sort of my business? So that might be a, a bit of a different perspective than maybe what you were expecting. Um, but for me, I think it's just the design, the look and feel, the premium aspect of it, and the fact that it was already evangelized with forward-thinking companies. Yeah, I mean, it, it's so interesting to me that you have you had such a strong set of incumbent tools and this relatively new upstart, which, by the way, had massive, remarkable market adoption. So I'm not taking away from any any of that, but you know, yet it was able to like, you know, how a company like Google couldn't have won that, this is just remarkable to me, I guess is my, yeah, but I, <laughs> is I would my say, broader point. Yeah, but I would say, think of it in the same framework as like Google consumer surveys, right? So I think what Google has done really well is they're able to create tools that get the job done. But I think sometimes if you're looking for greater feature sets or more customization or a more... I guess, personalized experience like Zoom, you can add your own logo, you know, you can integrate scheduling in, into a variety of different types of tools. We have, we have Zoom integrations with some of the, the tools that we use. I mean, the way in the ease of recording and then how that gets uploaded to the cloud. I mean, it has much more robust feature sets. So I think that, you know, Google's a smart company. They focus on the things that really move the needle for them. And so, I mean, I, I just wonder if, if Zoom was already skyrocketing, if it would have really moved the needle for them to invest their time and energy to, to mimicking some of Zoom's product features and enhancing those capabilities. So that's sometimes what I think about, right? Like, you know, our, our customers aren't using Google Consumer Surveys to conduct their research, but Google does have a survey tool. And so I think that's a great way to think about it. You've talked about it, but give us the elevator pitch of Perksy. Yeah, absolutely. So Perksy is a next-gen consumer insights platform that powers real-time research with everyday consumers through mobile. So our research is very contextual and in the moment. And so we have an app that users can download. It's uh, mobile first, so not mobile optimized, but entirely designed to be 
for the mobile experience. Um, so users download the app and they can answer these interactive, immersive questions from brands in a format called Stacks. So we never even use the word survey. It's like a it's like a dirty word for consumers. And for every stack that they answer, they can collect points, which they can then redeem at over a hundred different brand partners. And then on the brand side, uh, we have a platform where they can create and design their own research campaigns. So we do everything from, you know, we do full lifecycle insights. We do um, concept testing, product testing. We do guest intercepts, in-store feedback, both quantitative and qualitative research through mobile. They can create and design those uh, research campaigns. They can hyper-target their audience. So our platform enables you to have pre-targeting and get really granular so you can reach exactly who you need to. And they can launch those campaigns and then analyze that data in real time. So the way that we've sort of set up our platform is, is to really solve many of the problems that we feel market researchers face. So we have many folks in our team who come from research backgrounds, Nielsen, you know, Dynata, Ipsos, Kantar, and even the brand-facing side uh, like HBO. And we wanted to make sure that it wasn't just quick and dirty responses that researchers were getting, that technology was being used to actually productize the offline process. And that's what we really bring to the table. So we, we consider ourselves sort of the digital one-stop shop, or I would say three-quarter stop shop. Um, there's still definitely more that we want to add to the platform. And so we work with over 95 customers today, like Pepsi, Smuckers, Mars, Clorox, Colgate, Target, Kohl's, Nickelodeon. Um, so a variety of different companies, everyone from FMCG, uh, entertainment, uh, agencies, big technology companies and electronic companies. Um, so all of those. And we mostly do it in a, a subscription capacity. So we, we sort of sell these annual licenses. So brands have access to a platform where they can really get all their research done. I would say, though, that the core differentiator between you know, us and, and sort of other research platforms is the audience. So we bring a really, really premium audience. We have always believed that data validity really stems from who you're talking to. Of course, there are things to do that, that we've done on the technical side as well, but you got to be reaching the right people. So we never use third-party sample. Our audience is 100% our own. Um, and so we're able to reach really premium audiences, kind of like you mentioned you know, in your introduction, millennials, Gen Z. So we originally started as just being millennial and Gen Z. We've since grown and expanded. Um, so we're nationally representative um, across the U.S. and Canada. But we do we do really, really well with that younger audience. And because of the data we have and sort of the experience that we've created for the respondent, for the, you know, for the, the user of the app, we're able to capture everyone from like, you know, new moms, you know, on-the-go travelers, you know, these, these millennials that are, are just joining the workforce, all, all sorts of premium audiences on that front. So I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about your decision to focus on a very, how we call it, niche audience, which is like the younger, right? A younger audience and then expand up, right? Uh, to national rep. Why did you decide to land there at first? So my mama always told me something. She used to say, grow where you're planted. And I think the reason we started with millennial and Gen Z is just because that's what we knew. So, you know, I myself, I'm, I'm a millennial. And I think, you know, I designed an experience that would make me want to participate in research and that would make me really give quality feedback. So I realized, uh, you know, I came up with this concept when I had gone back to school 
And it, I, it really was sparked in a marketing management class. It was a HBS summer school or a Harvard summer school class that I was taking um, for undergraduate credit. And I, I remember just sitting there being like, you know, these tools are really outdated and you know, research is a huge space, but you know, I'm not engaging in brand research. Why aren't I engaging in brand research? Like, how come I'm not answering surveys? And so I started doing research with my peers to understand why they weren't. And they were like, I don't know. I just, there's nothing really that I care about or there's nothing really relevant. There's no sort of like, there's no app. And I thought about it and I was like, we need to design a really engaging contextual mobile app. That is going to be the way to reach that younger audience. And honestly, that was the focus from the beginning. We were just going to do millennial and Gen Z. And then we started expanding to older audiences because they were like, wait, well, I love this. So we started getting Gen X and and going up from there. And it, it was sort of, it happened very organically, but it really, you know, helped us sort of build a more robust solution, knowing that we could serve brands in all these different ways. But the focus was on millennial and Gen Z. And, and I will say on top of that, you know, it was something that we knew about. We knew brands were trying to reach these younger audiences, right? This is tomorrow's trillion dollar demographic. You know, we wanted to make sure that that brands were able to access them and get meaningful feedback from them so they could make decisions with more confidence. And the rest, as I said, was just, just a natural progression. Part of what I do is donate my time to different universities serving on on boards centric to masters in market research. And as such, I'm able to have the pleasure and honor of interacting with the next generation of, of researchers. What are three keys from your vantage point in managing a successful career? In managing a successful career, I would say, so specifically in market research, interesting. I would say I don't know how much my opinion is going to be aligned with, you know, other other executives, but I know in terms of of what I would look for is, you know, be for starters, be ruthlessly devoted to your craft. I think that, you know, I even see this in in our researchers. They just have this this inborn curiosity, this innate curiosity. They're constantly fact-finding, they're seeking to discover, and they genuinely derive just great pleasure from being able to do the work that they're doing. Like they, they find it fascinating. Like sometimes, you know, we're not in the office anymore, but when we were, you know, just like a, a little shadow across the office, it's like, Hey guys, isn't this fascinating? Like, come check this out. Like, look at what this audience said and like, look at, look at the product that's winning here. And, you know, I, I think, I think that's the first thing. It's just, you know, being devoted to your craft, really caring about the work that you're actually doing um, and being passionate about it. I think, you know, many people would say that. I think that's almost like a templated answer, but it's really true. The reason it's a cliche is because it's been proven, you know, time and time again to be to be a key marker for success. You know, w- without passion, you know, I think passion and success go hand in hand. Without passion, you can't really put in everything that you could, that you absolutely could. And so I think that's the the key component. The second is really trying to decide for yourself what type of career you want to have within your sector. I mean, there are, there are different types of researchers. You could work for a big company. You could be an innovator. You know, do you, do you want to be a leader? Like what, what sort of, which like micro path do you want to go down? And really sort of try to define for yourself what those interests are. Do you want to be the person who's the trailblazer at a big company? 
right? You know, some folks might say, you know, I want to go to this, this Fortune 500 brand and I want to do my best to trailblaze there. Whereas others might say, you know, I, I would rather go to a Fortune 500 brand and, and learn what the, what the industry standard is, what's the gold standard of, of how, to think about, how to think about research and how to conduct research. Or do you want to be the person that discovers that research is such a beautiful space? I mean, no one told me about that when I was in high school. No one told me that I could go into research. It was like, here are the boxes for what you can go into. You could be a doctor, or a lawyer, an accountant, you can marketing, PR, you know, all these, all these different areas. You could be an engineer, but, but no one told me that I can take all of these different things that I love and find them in one place within the technology space. I loved technology. And then I came across research and was like, this is an amazing space. It's so interdisciplinary. I mean, it's the intersection between behavioral science and the brand world and, you know, in my case, technology. And so I think it's, it's really trying to, to focus on what is the most important thing that you want to get out of your career and how can you decide which path to follow, you know, based on those decisions. And I would say the third thing in terms of managing career, I don't know, that's a tough one. I, I think I might just have two. I think if maybe the, the third piece of advice is to each their own. You don't have to do anything that anyone tells you you have to do, ever. It is entirely your choice. You get to entirely, I, I don't think that's talked about enough. My parents sort of, they taught me that. My dad used to always tell me that um, quote that's probably on a hundred different magnets, but you know, this is your world, shape it or someone else will. Uh, another thing you know, my parents taught me was, you know, you never have to apologize for the path that you want to take. You never have to apologize for wanting to do things differently. Instead, you should embrace that because I think I used to when I was younger. I used to feel like because I didn't want to do the same things that everyone else did, that that made me different, maybe wrong somehow. And, you know, that, that turned into me becoming an entrepreneur. So I think it's uh, trying to figure out not just like even don't listen to me, like what I tell you to do with your career. I think it's really about defining it for yourself, figuring out what it is that you want most and and following that path. We all have wanted a time machine so we could go back and tell ourselves, our younger selves, something, right? Some sort of knowledge or whatever. Uh, what advice would you give your 10-year younger self? If I could talk to my younger self, I think that I would tell her that things end up working out when you have good intentions. And that sometimes, I think when you're young, you're terrified of facing hard things. Like you're afraid that things are gonna go wrong. I think you're so afraid of preventing things going wrong that you don't allow things to naturally unfold. I mean, as a CEO, you have to make hard decisions. Sometimes you have to let people go that you don't want to let go or you, you wish you didn't have to. Sometimes you have to, you know, make calls, you know, on, on your business or even on a personal level. You just want to avoid difficult situations. And I think if I could tell any one thing to my younger self, I would say, seek them out, find them before they find you and just face them head on. I think it's something that sort of comes with, with age that, that sort of, that strength comes with age, you know, as, as you, you get older you become more accustomed to it. But I think that's just because you, you learn it over time because no one has really told you it early on. And I would say that to my younger self, like don't be afraid of the storm. Learn how to live within the storm. Learn how to embrace it, to accept it because the storm 
the storms will pass. And when they do, you'll still be okay. Even like, even if you feel like it's the worst thing in the world, that's only in the center of it, right? When you're in the, in the thick of it, in the midst of the storm. But once it passes, you find, you find that peace again. And I think that's true on a personal level and on a professional level. I think like, you know, for myself, I'm a perfectionist and, you know, I always want to perform at the highest level and that's not always going to happen. You know, there are ups and downs in life and that's just, that's just the universe trying to maintain equilibrium. No one gets to have it all. Right. And so I think learning to, to embrace that and, and to accept that early on serves would would serve you well and i think i i would communicate that message to my younger self we don't have a lot of time but i really want to dive in on this point or another question on your point as a entrepreneur and ceo you know that action is always more important it's the most important attribute right you always have to move if you don't we're like sharks if you don't move you will die the company will die you have to make a decision right or wrong and I'm really curious how you deal with when you make a what turns out to be a wrong decision, how you deal with the negative voice inside your head. Um, I think that so like, uh, you know, my mom is a Tony Robbins fan, Tony Robbins fan. And there was this uh, magnet that she had on the fridge. I now have it. She gave it to me. It's on my it's on my door. And it says, there is no failure, only feedback. I think that I've learned in time that, you know, a wrong decision is just another data point, right? It's just a data point as to what doesn't work and what doesn't go well and what not to do. And I think I've sort of adapted that. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, sit here and pretend that there haven't been decisions that I've made that haven't turned out well that I haven't really beat myself up over because I definitely have. I think I'm, I am my own harshest critic and I've definitely done that. But I think that that process is almost just a part of who I am. As long as it doesn't affect sort of your well-being and your overall happiness, you know, it, it doesn't really affect my sense of self or, you know, change my, uh, you know, my self-worth. Um, I think for me, it's just sort of this process that I run through where I get upset about something and I think that's just because I care so much, right? I care so much about, you know, wanting, like I, I just, it's the battle against the ambition, right? The, the desire to want to produce really amazing things and do great work. But I think it's just like, I've accepted that that's not always going to be the case. And to try and accept these things as data points and try to move on from them quickly but when I do get into the headspace where I feel like I'm beating myself up, I try to use that as a moment and just sit with it. I try to sit with those emotions and be like, why am I this upset? Am I this upset because of the situation or am, am I upset at myself or someone else? What is the root of the emotion that I am feeling right now? And I try to sort of dig into that a little bit more. And then I think once you start to identify that, once you sort of like deconstruct your feelings, it makes it a lot easier to to deal with them and to pick up and move on. And and so that's that's sort of my best advice around that. Perfect. Last question. What is your personal motto? I actually said it earlier in this interview. So I, I used it in a sentence, um, which is the strongest metal is forged 
from the hottest fire. And so that's always been my personal motto because, you know, being a CEO is like being, especially of a, of a startup, right? A technology company. It's like being on fire constantly, right? You're just constantly on fire. You're trying to put out fires. Sometimes they're ashtray fires. Sometimes they're house fires, but there's always a fire. And so I think it, I think the reason why that resonated with me, I actually got it from a TV show I really like. And I switched my motto up a lot. I actually I have an agenda. And at the beginning of each week, I actually put my, my motto, like my words to live by. That's what I call them um, at the top of the page so that I see them all week. And I adapt them through my changing circumstances. So if there's something that I know is really affecting me, I will switch that up, right? And so the, the latest one, though, my personal motto really has been that the strongest metal is forged from the hottest fire. And it, to me, it's, it's both badass and meaningful. I'm just like, yes, that's right. It is forged from the hottest fire, but also meaningful as in like, Nadia, don't worry. Like these like incredibly like treacherous, like heated fires that you might come into contact with will mean that you're com- you and your company are coming out stronger. And I like to use that as words to live by. My guest today has been Nadia Masri, founder and CEO of Perksy and Forbes 30 Under 30 in the 2019 Marketing and Advertising Division. Thank you, Nadia, for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. Thanks so much. It was such a pleasure. Everyone else, if you found value, like I know I did in this episode, I hope that you will screen capture, share it on LinkedIn, share it on Twitter. If you tag me or happy, then we will send you a free t-shirt. Have a wonderful rest of your day.